This is Limitless Possibility. I'm Luke Levitz Mable. And I'm Yannick Magnan. And what's our topic for today, Yannick? Branches, feature flags, and monorepos. Good, but before you start, you also have some follow-up. Yep, so first off, uh, for episode 82, which was about Nintendo's mobile games, a couple episodes later, there was some follow-up uh, where we announced that Dr. Mario World was apparently in development uh, for mobile devices, and they announced today that it's coming to iOS on July 10th. Uh, so looking forward to that. It looks like a kind of very Candy Crush Saga-ish take on Dr. Mario, which is not getting the greatest compliments on the internet. At the same time, like certain people who dislike Dr. Mario think it looks better than Dr. Mario. Um, so I don't know. I, I'm g- probably going to try it. I don't think I'm going to stick with it for very long. Uh, much like other Nintendo mobile games, it requires an online internet connection at all times to be played. And the other thing uh, we talked about on an fairly recent episode is that the mario kart tour closed beta has ended and apparently mario kart tour is quite boring and bad as a game so that (laughs) kind of sucks because i was really looking forward to playing mario kart on the go uh apparently you steer by dragging on the screen huh which is a weird control mechanism uh i i've recently been playing uh need for speed no limits i think it's called on uh the iphone and i think that has a very good steering model where you just tap on the left side of the screen or the right side of the screen to steer um dragging seems really weird but i don't know we'll find out when mario kart tour comes out they haven't announced a release date for that yet uh and if it was really that bad maybe they'll actually push it significantly further down the line which would also kind of suck because mario kart tour has been delayed forever already so yeah when you sent me a link about uh, dr mario i completely forgot about it and i was like ooh, super uh, excited because i love uh dr mario I forgot it was the, if there was other games uh dr mario games except the one that i love so much on the nes there was a version on Game Boy, there was a port to Super Nintendo, and there was Dr. Luigi on the Wii U. Hmm. Okay. Then uh, the one I loved, because I think that's the only one I played, yeah, that would be the only one I played, is uh, the NES version. I love it. That, that game, my brother and I played it so much. Uh, I, I was about to say when we were younger, but I recall like semi-recently, especially when I got the NES Classic, we played it again so much together. So, really nice. So I'm excited. Hopefully, if it's not, it is not too uh, Candy Crush like. So I'll spend so much time playing it. Speaking of being excited for things, we have an administrative note uh, at the end of this follow up, which is also technically follow up for episode 103, uh, which was our game of the year episode. Um, I mentioned on that episode that this year my big theme was going to be the year of PlayStation, and as part of my year of PlayStation, I wanted to play a bunch of. PlayStation era RPGs and one notable PlayStation era RPG that I have never played and Ducadivi has never played as well is Final Fantasy 7. So on August 18th we are going to be releasing a special episode about Final Fantasy 7 where we're both going to play a portion of the game for the first time, uh, specifically the Midgar section which is approximately 7 hours long. So we're warning you ahead of time in case you want to play along with us. And the reason we chose Midgar as the uh, as the section of the game we're playing 
is well first of all it's the first part of the game so that is kind of the easiest one to play through but also because it was announced last week at e3 that this segment of the game is going to become the first part of final fantasy 7 remake which is coming out next year and this seven hour chunk of a playstation game that is not even the entire first disc of a four disc game is going to take up two blu-ray discs worth of assets and content which is kind of nuts um so yeah we're going to be playing through that and play along if you want to that's it yeah let's move to your topic cool so uh, I'm going to have a little bit of a glossary up front because if you have no idea what branches, feature flags, or monorepos <laughs> are, you're just going to say, like, no, I'm skipping this episode. Yeah, I, I think it's time for you to insert your typical, like, oh, if you're not a dev, you might uh, want to skip this episode. Uh, but I, but I don't think you're going to want to skip this episode. I'm going to try my best to actually ma- make it make sense. So modern day developers use version control tools like Git, Mercurial, or Subversion uh, to allow things like reverting to previous versions of your code base or facilitating collaboration from multiple developers. And version control systems have a lot of different things that when you make a change to the application, you make what's called a commit and you submit it to a repository. Um, And there are a lot of different concepts that build on top of version control systems. One of them is branches. Uh, branches are a VCS feature that allow for parallel development of multiple features to eventually be merged back together into a common tree. Uh, we're going to call this the master branch or the master version throughout this episode uh, when the feature is complete. Feature flags are not directly related to version control systems. In fact, they are rarely directly related to uh, version control systems at all. And they are just this construct that exists to toggle individual features on and off in an application, mostly but not always at runtime. This also gets called a bunch of other things. Uh, Occasionally feature toggles are used. I don't know what caused one over the other. And we're going to go through other things that are technically feature flags but not really called that uh, a little later in the feature flags section of the episode and projects and version control have traditionally always been each in their own repository which is like the the journal where you keep all of the history for that project Um, but in more recent years it has been really trendy to use these things called monorepos where you say the entire company's development happens in one large repository and then the journal that keeps track of all of the revisions is shared for the entire company's development, which can be incredibly useful and incredibly messy. And we'll get into that a little later. So that's just to give you an idea of all the concepts we're going to be touching on on this episode. So if you're not a developer, you at least have a general idea of what's going on. Now I want to give you the context for why I'm doing this episode. Um, and actually, I sort of was interested in just talking about this theoretically uh, like three months ago before I actually knew that it was going to be relevant to my job. uh, And then it became relevant to my job. Uh, So previously, our company used Subversion for version control, which is an older, like early 2000s era version control system. Uh, And one of the downsides with Subversion is that branches in Subversion are very expensive. When you say, I want to make a new branch, you are effectively taking the master version of the thing and copying it to a second directory. And that means like your file size pretty much doubles. And this can be very unreasonable because in 
large projects and large companies, you can wind up with many, many, many branches. And if you've got, let's say, a gigabyte's worth of uh, history, every time someone is working on a feature in parallel, you're adding another gigabyte to the repository's file size, which is untenable at large scales. Uh, and even just at small scales, depending on the size of your projects. Um, so that was not ideal. Basically, because branches were very expensive, we didn't use branches for uh, our development. And we started, we were starting to run into issues. Changes were being committed to the master version at all times during development. And this had a variety of negative impacts. Uh, there was the constant possibility that incomplete functionality was going to wind up in the master tree. And uh, we weren't really using feature flags across all of our developers. So it was possible, and occasionally even it happened, that we accidentally published incomplete features to production, which is not something you really want. Uh, and another issue we ran into is we wanted to have a, a fallback server with backup versions of our applications. And the only way we could, we could have a snapshot of what was live in production was to copy it off the production server or to have someone in the office who happens to remember what the last published commit was, revert to it, build it, and then send that weird build to our uh, guy who handles the fallback server. So realistically, what would actually happen is our the person who maintains our fallback server would just clone whatever was at the head of the repository on master. And occasionally that meant that the fallback server was using a more recent version than it should, and it would have incomplete features. And if we had a failure on the website, we would revert to a version with more features than the version. And maybe it doesn't even build. Maybe it's like there, there are a bunch of issues with that that we really didn't like. So a month ago, we got a new on-premises server in our office, and I proposed to my boss that we use this opportunity to move our repositories to Git. I had been campaigning for this for at least a year because we've been having these issues for quite a while, but now we had an opportunity. We were going to have to move all our repositories over from one machine to the other anyway, so we might as well adopt Git in the process. And there are a bunch of advantages to switching to Git from Subversion. One of the big ones that we really appreciate is better file merge algorithm. Uh, it sounds really stupid, but Subversion's merge algorithm is ridiculously dumb and gets confused very easily. And what that meant is that um, multiple times a week, we would have to go do conflict resolution where we look at the two files side by side and we choose like which revision is good or if both revisions are good, how to organize the code in the document so that it actually continues to function correctly. Um, and under Subversion, like I said, we had multiple conflicts a week. And now we've had one conflict in the entire month that we've been on Git. And we're still at the same pace of development. So it's a lot less of a hassle to actually be using Git. And it's kind of worth it just for that alone uh, in some degrees, especially since there were some of our developers that were less skilled at evaluating uh what the correct conflict resolution solution was, and we ended up with bugs that way. So this just simplifies things. Uh, with Git, one of the big things that was really praised early on was that branching is basically free. So we can use them for everything and anything we want, and we do. So that's great. Um, also, uh, one of the sort of implementation details about Git, which honestly, when you're using it, is not a detail, but 
for the sake of this episode, let's just say it's an implementation detail, is it's decentralized, which means that you can have branches locally on your computer that are not on the server uh, and vice versa. Because of that, like you have more flexibility of maybe if you're experimenting on something that you is just a throwaway idea, uh, you can just keep it local on your machine and never push it back to the server. Uh, and another thing which has become relevant recently because we've been hiring more people is younger developers are already familiar with Git. So it's less of a learning curve for the younger employees to the company to use Git than it is to teach them how to use a version and like it was like 15 years ago. Uh, and that is a pretty good thing. So everybody is happy now because we can use modern tools and not be stuck on subversion, which is kind of crappy. So let's get into talking about feature flags. There are two main types of feature flags, and this episode is going to concentrate on one of them. Uh, so there is runtime feature flags. Runtime feature flags means that the code for your feature is going to be included in the finished binary of your application when you build it. And more or less what determines if a feature is enabled or not is you have an if statement that checks if the value of the flag is true or false when the application is running, and if it's true, the code is run, and if it's false, it doesn't. Pretty basic stuff. There are variations on that. Sometimes you can have like uh, multiple choice feature flags. So like I want feature A or B or C, and you have like th that sort of feature flag. But in general, it can be as simple as a true or false value, and that's fine. You also have compile time feature flags. So this is... Before compilation on your machine, there's a preprocessor that adds and removes chunks of code based on the value of those feature flags. And what that means is that your code for those features is in your code base, but it never actually makes it into the finished product. Uh, it gets stripped out before it actually makes it to the binary, which is another approach to do it. Um, and it's not necessarily available in all languages, which is why I mentioned it here. We're going to be mainly focusing on runtime feature flags for this episode because compile time just isn't available everywhere and it's not as relevant. So where are you storing these values for the, these feature flags? Well, you have multiple options. So a very frequent one is configuration files or preference files. Uh, it's significantly easier for less technical staff to enable or disable functionality as appropriate with uh, this approach. And if you're a macOS user, uh, you've probably heard about the default write command. This is a command line interface to preference files. So that could technically be considered feature flags to a certain degree. Uh, and there's, uh, I think the application is called Secrets. It's a preference pane you can install on the Mac that shows you a bunch of def different default writes uh, statements for various applications on your device. Uh, another frequent approach I've seen is iOS URL schemes where uh, an application will register a private URL scheme, which is like, uh, I think Omni Group does this with their applications, like Omni defaults colon slash slash, and then it sort of emulates the command line interface to defaults, right? So you can pass in different things to write feature flags onto the application. We do that to uh, in our iOS app at the work. Yeah, I remember that. So... Another thing you can do, which is a lot less flexible, is configuration classes with constants. Um, the reason I'm mentioning it here is that to an untrained eye, these could look like runtime feature flags. Um, but actually, depending on the language and the compiler settings, uh, it's possible that an optimization pass in your application 
can make this f equivalent to compile time feature flags. This is the case on um, in, in C-sharp applications. If you define a constant on a configuration class and you say this feature flag is false and you have an if statement with false, the optimization pass is just going to remove that entire if as if it wasn't there. Uh, so be careful how you implement these things. Database is another storage option. So if you're hosting software for a client without direct access to the application binary or source, storing your feature flags in the database and providing a front end to those flags uh, to the client lets them have the flexibility to enable and disable things on their own when they're ready to. This can be great if, for example, you're trying to coordinate a feature launch with a marketing event or something. Uh, you can give them a feature flag with uh, something in their back end that they can flip on and off. And then when the time comes, they can do the thing and the feature is live and you didn't have to intervene at all. For desktop software and to a lesser extent mobile software, uh, launch arguments are a thing. So uh, sometimes when you're using command line applications or even uh, like I think Steam games are kind of like this, you can give it various launch arguments to say like force DirectX 9 instead of DirectX 11 so it can run on wine and shit. Uh, you can do that stuff via launch arguments. It's a lot nerdier and generally not recommended for for consumer-facing applications unless your consumers are supposed to, supposed to be command line geeks. I guess that works. Um, if your application has a module system with rights management, that can technically be used as feature flags. Uh, if your feature is self-contained in, in its own module, you can just set your unfinished functionality as only being available to a developer user type. And there's not much there that makes it different uh, to feature flags in practice. Uh, if you're familiar with experiments or A-B testing, those are kind of feature flags. They're just feature flags that are variable depending on which user you are. Um, and the thing I want to do before we move on from storage options is you need to know that you're not locked into using any one specific one of these for all of your features. You can have the flexibility to choose whichever one is appropriate for whichever features are in your application. Two different features can have two different storage options if you want. It's perfectly fine. So one of the things I dislike about feature flags is that there can be some inconsistency as to how you implement them as a developer. Because it turns out that not everything can be wrapped in a conditional statement. If I'm working on a web MVC controller in C Sharp, I can't wrap a function or a new action I'm adding to a web page with an if statement because that's a syntax error. It's not allowed. Um, so you sort of have to get creative about how you do these things. Uh, for example, in that particular case, if I'm working on a website and I... I'm in an MVC controller, maybe the body of that actions method is going to be, if the feature flag is off, throw a not implemented exception. It's not the most graceful thing, um, but it can work in a pinch. Um, you might also be using language features in your code that are convenient for frequent tasks, but are less amenable to being conditionally toggled with feature flags. And you're probably only going to find out about this when you're going to decide to use a feature flag toggle one of these things and you realize you can't. Uh, a great example of this is MVC route attributes in C Sharp with ASP.NET MVC. So you can just like add an attribute to um, to any method that is also a page you can access on the web. 
and you can give it a route to various things. And one of the things you can't do is have multiple routes that overlap. So if you're working on version A of something and version B of something, and your feature flag is to toggle between version A and version B uh, at the same route, you can't wrap that route attribute with an if statement. So even if you do the thing I just said, where you do if feature flag is off throw not implemented exception, you're going to get errors in your code just because you have the same route twice. In fact, your application will just like complain endlessly if you try to go to those pages. Um, so you're going to have to change the way in which you define your routes to something that can be wrapped conditionally to do these things. And this is just one example, but there might be many depending on the type of development you're doing. So feature flags can be tricky for that. And another thing that can be tricky is changes to database models. Like we're not talking in this episode at all about how you're going to keep track of database changes because that is basically another episode on its own. Um, but if you're writing your own model classes and you're adding column definitions, you have to be mindful of what the state of the database is going to be. And if having columns that don't exist in the production database are going to cause crashes and all of these things. And again, if you're defining new fields on your classes, you can't wrap those field definitions in with conditional statements. And like it, it becomes very complicated very quickly as to what the correct thing is to do with feature flags in all situations there's a very high cognitive load to implementing feature flags in all but the simplest situations. And in certain languages where maybe you have an ORM that does all of the database stuff for you, like maybe you don't care and it won't crash your application. So you can just like sort of do the easy thing and it works. In other more strictly typed languages or other things, it can be really a hellish job to actually get feature flags implemented correctly all the time. There are some downsides to feature flags if you are solely reliant on them to restricting access to unfinished features. Uh, one easy example is if your app is a desktop or a mobile application where your users have direct access to the finished binary, anything you hide within a feature flag can potentially be discovered by curious hackers. This happened many years ago. Uh, a friend of mine, Marvin Bernal, uh, who was a jailbreak developer, found the secret Facebook iPad application months before it was actually released because there was a feature flag to enable it. Uh, it was a universal application with the Facebook phone app. Um, so like that's a thing that can happen if you're using feature flags and you need to be careful if there are things you don't want to leak. Maybe you want to use compile time feature flags to actually get those secret features out of the code base entirely if you're using feature flags. I believe this is what Apple does with uh, iOS betas to try and retract features that could give away potential hardware announcements in the fall. Not that this always works 100% of the time. Uh, a couple of years ago, we had one of those like if def fails that sort of unveiled a lot of the hardware stuff ahead of time, um, but it is an approach you can take. Uh, another thing with feature flags is it's easy to wind up with a weird dependency management issue. Does feature flag C assume that feature flag A is enabled? Are there two feature flags that absolutely must not be enabled at the same time or they crash? Uh, and the more feature flags there are, the more permutations there are to test. Um, and you, you might be thinking, well, really the only two situations that I need to test for are the one that are the ones in production and maybe the ones that's going to be in future production. Sure, okay, but again, if you have any kind of dynamic feature flags or stuff like that, 
uh, where uh, either your users or uh, your client can change these flags at will, like maybe what you've assumed will be future future uh, production is not actually what's going to be future production. And you sort of need to prepare for the eventual possibility where something you didn't predict is going to happen. Uh, of course, humans are fallible. Uh, so there's always the potential of accidentally leaving functionality not wrapped in a conditional testing for your feature flag. And maybe half your feature is actually being checked by the feature flag and half your feature is just always on. And it's easy to fuck that stuff up if you're not used to it. Uh, another downside that is pretty obvious to me uh, and oddly enough doesn't seem to get mentioned very much in discussions of these things is natural code clutter and potential for obsolete code accumulation across your code base. Like I said, it's not necessarily clear when you're looking at the code what the current value of the feature flag is. And it's entirely possible, depending on how you implement it, that that feature flag value can change at any moment in time. So you don't know if you can delete code that is no longer being used. So you're not going to delete it, probably. Maybe you are fairly confident about what the state of the feature flag is in production right now. And you can say, not being used in production, I can remove this. But what is the feature flag configuration in your staging environment? What is the feature flag configuration in your debug environment? What about if you're a crazy person who's doing branches and feature flags at the same time? What if there's someone on another branch with a completely different configuration? Like, you can't necessarily see these things. And all of that uncertainty will just mean you are going to have obsolete code piling up at a very quick rate. So that's kind of my whirlwind overview of feature flags as a concept. I'm going to go through branches next, and then we're going to compare the two and talk about the pros and cons of both. Branches, like I explained earlier, from a given... Uh, there are different methodologies which exist for branching. To be honest, I'm only really familiar with one of them that seems to be like the popular thing that everyone is using nowadays, which is called Gitflow. And how Gitflow works is you've got more or less four main types of branches, sometimes five. You have the master branch, which is the version which is actively in production. You have the develop branch, which represents the version that is currently in your staging environment or what is probably going to be used as the base for the next release if you're a release-based company. You have hotfix branches, which are based on the master branch and are used for emergency fixes. These are merged back into master and develop on completion. You have feature branches, which are based on develop and they contain a feature. And then they get merged back into develop on completion and become awaiting the next deployment. In general, if you want to do the things correctly, master and develop must stay building at all times, and uh, hotfix branches and feature branch branches should build at all times if multiple developers are assigned to that branch, otherwise not really necessary. So that's more or less like the basic guidelines of how we use Gitflow. Um, like I said, there is like an optional fifth type of branch, which is the release branch. So if you do things with version numbers, uh, which is not really a thing for web apps, which is why we don't really do it. Um, you can have release branches, which are like preparing the release for when it was shipped. And when I did like iconoclasm stuff, I did use to have release branches. I thought for quite a while that they were kind of redundant with just tagging the end release, but I, they do serve like minor different roles. So. Eh. look into it if that fits into your workflow for me it's like kind of not really we've been uh, pretty successful at only using tagging for that purposes yeah like uh, i've only really used it for iconoclasm and felt redundant there and 
like I, I would love to hear from other people who use GitFlow, like if release branches serve any use at all for your business. I've seen the I've seen release branches being successful and useful where you want to back deploy some patches. Um, yeah, I definitely. would say that that is kind of since that is impossible to do on the App Store, I feel that release branches lo- lose their value for that. Um, We've done some recently because we're uh, like kind of working on a big update, so that has been in the work for a long time. Uh, but uh, a good example of where I see that is some on some of our uh, Mac products. I know that they're uh, really heavy on release benches because sometimes they have to pack deploy security fixes to some of the um, still popular uh, version of our app that is still in the wild. That is a great point. Having strong conventions for branches enables new things. If you can actually say like master is production and develop is staging, uh, it makes a heck of a lot more sense to actually get invested in continuous integration and deployment, which is something we've discussed on the show previously in a number of Ducadvie episodes. Mm-hmm. Um, and honestly, it is something we are looking to adopt eventually. Uh, we have to resolve some issues specific to automated builds on Windows right now because we are doing everything via Visual Studio and IIS and it's not necessarily the greatest fit for free and open source Unix tools. <laughs> Who would have guessed? Um, but we're working on it and we would like to eventually bring that in. Um, you can also have some really cool tooling and sometimes it's custom and sometimes it's just stuff that people have written on the internet. Uh, we had a lot of cool tooling in my old job where we sort of got into this workflow and I'm sort of just recreating the workflow in my new job now because I'm the one who's in charge. Uh, so you can have tools that tell you if all of the patches in develop have been merged into master. So you can say, you can see if there's a diversion between, uh, what's in development and what's in master. Uh, so like what, what projects have pending releases or pending features that have yet to be, uh, deployed you can do the same thing for branches you can say are there branches that exist on this project that have not been merged into either master or develop which means unfinished or abandoned features uh and you can have various visualizations of all of the development happening across the project at once which can be very useful it can also be a complete mess uh it depends on again how you do your merges and all of that stuff but it can be very useful for finding where certain changes came from One of the downsides for branches is potential for code duplication. And here's a very stupid example. If I create a helper function on one branch that could be useful to other people on my team, but my feature has yet to actually be merged into either master or develop, it's highly unlikely that people in other branches will be aware of it. So nothing is actually preventing them from writing the exact same helper function somewhere. And if they have the same name and are stored in the same class, we're likely going to have a merge conflict eventually uh, where the project just won't build because there are going to be two functions with the same name. If they have different names or are stored in different classes, now we have two of the same function in the application. And at scale, this can bloat up your application. See also the Facebook iOS app in 2015, which had 18,000 classes. It is very easy to have your code bloat up like this. And occasionally it is nice to just go through the application and try to clean that stuff up against it's more feasible for smaller teams than for larger teams, which is something we will get into very shortly. Branches compared to feature flags give you a one-time burden 
during the merge when the functionality is complete as opposed to an ongoing burden during development. More or less the only time you need to really worry about doing anything special for your development is if another developer modified the same lines you touched within files you modified in your branch, there is a potential for conflicts when merging your code back into its parent branch. And of course, like ignoring the fact that your changes to the code can also have implications on other people's code and break tests and stuff like that can also happen. You have to resolve all of that at merge time. And it's the only time you really have to think about it. Uh, there is a special case for stuff like SVG sprites. So if you have a large sheet of SVG icons, for example, and you've added an icon on one branch and you've added an icon on another branch and then you merge the file, that file is just XML. It will merge cleanly and you will have both icons overlapping one on top of the other, which is probably not what you wanted. You're going to have to go in to your image editor and move the two icons so they aren't one on top of the other if you didn't, if you happen to put them in the exact same spot on the grid. So that's like a kind of example that like at my old job, we never used SVG. So I didn't really think of this until it sort of happened last week. And I was like, oh shit, that is a thing that can happen. <laughs> cool. Uh, so yeah. So I want to get into comparing uh, branches and feature flags. And I think this is where the meat of the discussion is going to happen because there are a lot of heated opinions in this place. And I want to start off by saying this is not necessarily an either or uh, problem. There are plenty of scenarios where you will want to isolate development on separate branches while also having feature flags for various features in your application. Like that is totally a thing you can do. And it probably even makes sense for a lot of people. Uh, so you, you don't need to see this as a binary yes or no. Uh, you can do both and it's fine and it's great. And it's probably going to resolve many issues for you if you do both. And this is where I sort of come down and say, as much as I would like to say that there is a definite answer to the problem of developing features in parallel, the right tool for the job is largely dependent on a range of factors, uh, namely the size of your team, the frequency of deployments, how strongly you adhere to automated tested NCI, and the average size of your features. Like that also really matters. Uh, for both teams in which I've worked so far, branching with GitFlow has had the best return on investment. Uh, of all of these methods. Uh, in both cases, it was kind of a five-person team with one or two features developed at a time, zero to four deployments of a given project on most days, and developers are responsible for the deployment of the, their projects, which means that there is basically like no one between the developer and the deploy button to say, no, your code is shit. It's not going into production. Here are the reasons why I really like branching with GitFlow as like a solution for these kinds of teams. It has a low cognitive load. It's less error prone than uh, feature flags. And it has a simple, consistent execution. Earlier, I was talking about how like for feature flags, you constantly have to think about the various ways in which you do things to make them amenable to wrapping it with a conditional or putting a conditional in the body of whatever it is you're doing. With branches, you can just code how you usually would code and then the only thing you sort of have to manage is the merging but nothing has to change on the code side of things which facilitates things for the for developers significantly uh for small teams like the ones i mentioned the one-time burden on merge is basically rarely a burden because the chances of merge conflicts are rare to begin with on these teams uh like we rarely work on features that touch the same part of code at the same time. This is really more as a technique to try and 
prevent unfinished features from winding up in production, which is a very different problem than a lot of people are trying to solve. Master developed branches move slow enough that we can keep up with testing what new master will be before deploying. Uh, in big companies, often master and develop move incredibly quickly, uh, especially in monorepos, which we'll talk about in a bit. And you don't really have the chance to do much to actually test that your merged version is correct and won't break stuff. Uh, and usually you have like automated testing and stuff like that. We do not, uh, don't at me. Um, but it's a lot easier when you're not constantly behind on master and develop and you never actually have the chance to catch up. You don't even need to do any of the fancy stuff like rebasing or no fast forward, which I guess it sounds stupid saying fancy, but it's like it's not the default behavior is really more what I mean. Uh, you don't have to do any of that to actually see a big gain in developer productivity from not having the anxiety of deploying something that isn't supposed to be live in production. Like that for us is the big gain from going to branching. It's a lot harder to fuck it up for this particular purpose than it is to use feature flags. However, bigger companies may actually prefer to go towards feature flags. Uh, bigger companies tend to prefer gradual rollouts, A-B testing, and staff mode for dogfooding new features where you have the new features out in production. It's just only enabled on developer accounts or employee accounts. At scale, issues caused by big merges become more frequent, and your master develop branches are probably moving quicker than your ability to respond to those issues, which means you're going to be stuck in an endless loop of resolving merge conflicts and never actually getting your new code deployed, which is a problem if you're a big company trying to deploy new stuff. Um, and on top of that, bigger companies tend to have more rigorous processes between a coder finishing a task and it winding up in production, such as automated testing, institutional conventions on commit sizes, multiple layers of code review, all of that stuff all the great big company stuff there is a complexity price you pay when you go the feature flag route but that is kind of the price of working at scale to a certain degree and the processes you have in place exist to catch catch your screw-ups before they wind up in production so might as well use them for something so that's kind of my comparison i'm i would love to know what you think about these things it's funny because throughout the years we kind of uh used a mix of everything you just discussed. Um I'll start by saying that I don't have that much experience with A B testing itself. Uh I know we didn't discuss too much about it, but here is more easy more or less to say like like you describe use feature flag to test functionality in the wild to see like we're not sure if uh let's say this UI should be built uh should like have that button this way i know uh lots of the big social network are uh really uh in favor and really proponents of a b testing uh and, you know, a good example of that is uh recently facebook kind of redone this uh it's uh app ui and i saw that tony added before me for example uh, so it's a completely app experience that different users might have so it, they could do that for really testing purposes to know what works better for customers or just to do gradual rollout um also usually all the back end stuff is handled by another team so uh, i have less experience of that though i have shit ton of opinions about uh branch versus feature flag in uh a server environment I don't have a lot of experience implementing it, but I have a lot of opinion using it as a client of that, of said <laughs> backend. Uh, but in general, on the iOS side, like, uh, I kind of entered when we were discussing about branches. 
I do feel that because of some of the App Store limitation, it can influence what you could do and what you can't do. Uh, like we said, uh, the example of branches, you can't really do uh, release branches. You can, but they kind of lose their value because let's say uh, you realize that there's a security issue in your 1.1 version and you're currently at 1.3. On the App Store to fix it, you cannot deploy a 1.1.1 and a 1.3.1, let's say, that contains both the security patch. Uh, on the App Store, you only go forward. So you need to deploy that and that could be problematic if the, let's say, in the 1.2, you uh, deprecated some iOS version that is dropping hardware uh support so um, lots of fun times and fun discussion around that but i don't want to include that too much all of this is say is i do feel that release branches uh unless you're working on two different releases maybe like some a bit of maintenance and then there's a bigger project uh at the same time and that you might need to deploy a couple of smaller updates in the old like let's say old version or old track and then those uh, fixes or just small bug fix or small feature get also added to uh, the new project. Uh, that's where I would see where um, release branches would be uh, successful and where I've experienced it being successful. What I've realized and I've talked a lot with other friends and colleagues that uh, are at other places Building feature behind big, like kind of like feature branches that may spawn months, uh, that could be risky, especially. I have to kind of choose my words here, but especially if uh, you have a risk of the project being canned. Let's put it this way, or like you have a specific allotted amount of time for that project. Um, by kind of keeping it on the branch it might never go to prod and you will you buy it being forced to really kind of like let's say you rewrite some of your ui some of your feature you kind of pushing at the uh bring back that work to your uh develop branch or your master branch or when you want to go to prod you bring a lot of merge like of conflict resolutions at the end of that project because you might have done so much changes that uh those changes are in like perfect conflict with some of the new changes that has been happening since these few uh, releases so it is nice because you can live on your own world you don't need to think about multiple branches because that branching that you were supposed to do in your code with flags to say oh is the flag enabled no then do this or it is enabled do that uh your source control software is kind of doing that for you right because you have let's say branch a that does uh ui a and then branch b does ui b and depending on which branch you use then you get specific behavior but all of this is today is like if let's say branch b is so as a long project and then it, it needs to go quickly on prod. It becomes a big burden at the end to make sure that it is prod ready and kind of like can be a deployed quickly, especially if you've been making lots and lots of changes and not reapplying what's have been happening in the past few weeks, months uh, on your project. And that's kind of where I lean into with some of the feature flags. 
is mainly because feature flags are there, whether they are like compile time or runtime or even like stored on a server, they allow you to bring back functionality on your main trunk, deploy them, go through testing in a way where your software can still be quote unquote green to deploy. Like you can go, it can go through UI tests, it can go through unit tests, it could go through your QA team and your QA systems. Uh, it can go through your performance system if you have like performance, performance tests while still delivering those small chunk of warm, so small chunk of work one piece at a time. Also, it gives you even more flexibility saying, Oh, then you can maybe try to do A B testing with that because it is a branch in your code already. So then driving this flag could just be, like I said, a remote configuration and say like half of the user don't have it and then do uh, rollouts and all that stuff. So I feel that it gives you, it gives you more flexibility, but at the same time, it has an added cost of uh, managing those multiple branches. Like you mentioned, there's like, what happens if I have flag A enabled, flag B at option two, and then flag three at enabled? It's like you blow up your state quite quickly, and that becomes could become a burden to uh, make sure that everything is green and uh, good to go. It's kind of weird. I think I have hangups from my past as a professional Swizzler where, <laughs> where I, I, I'm just like not comfortable with having things in the binary that are not done because, uh, like, it, especially for web apps, like, it's really, really dumb because depending on how you do your feature flags or whatever, like, even if you go to the URL, you're not going to get the new functionality, but there's still a part of me that's like, yeah, but it's still there. Like it's, it's still there and it's not finished. It's not ready to go. We shouldn't be putting this in production, but it's there. But like all you need to do is flip a flag and it's there. And it, it drives me so crazy that I would rather have branches. And like, like I said, like for most teams I've worked in, it's been fine. It's been like the perfect solution for what we wanted. But I, I think my decisions are also informed by my hangups from my past as an iOS hacker. So, yeah, yeah, I, I can understand why you don't want customer to force it. And at this point, if they force it and enable it, unless it creates a security hole, and that's where I would say, like, okay, yeah, then you need to quickly patch that feature and make sure that it's gone. Uh, but in general, if they have a kind of a broken experience and they, they figure out the flag, it's like kind of, I wouldn't say it's their fault, but at the same time, it's like. You kind of like wander a place you shouldn't wander where, and now you kind of yeah you can you could end up in the same situation as with Facebook getting their uh, iPad uh, UI leaked. But at the same time, I do like that. Uh, it I do like that you can get this code through all of your review process. I'm not saying that with branches you can't. Um, you should still because if you have uh, good CI and CD this can be like tested independently and all of that stuff but it feels good that you can test that at the end like from your development environment to your staging environment to even prod because you can end up with an account that is a testing account that is uh, on your prod environment so it's you're gonna get it everywhere whereas I'm not sure if you would like to deploy from kind of a feature branch that is like on the side. 
but I kind of agree with you. So my, my, my answer to all of what you said is kind of a yes and no. I feel that depending on the context and the feature or the product you have, you might, you might decide to choose one or the other or even both. And I think that's okay. I yeah. don't think there's nothing wrong with doing both. Those, both of them in my book and in my experience, what I've seen is they have the kind of equal amount of pluses and minuses. So you really need to, every time you need to ask about it, you need to reflect on what are your needs for it and what are the downsides you don't want to deal with and then choose a situation that fits that context. It's kind of a boring answer. I'm sorry to say that, but it I know is. I I I think when we were discussing this episode quite a while back, you were getting yourself ready for another like inflammatory Yannick episode where it's like I say crazy shit and it, there's no nuance whatsoever, and it's just like facts. <laughs> Zelda is bad. <laughs> oh my goodness! <laughs> no, I, I'm not. Maybe I was at that time, but uh, I am okay. I am a bit surprised on your nuance approach because I agree that these topics are sometimes uh inflammatory topic on your side. But uh I'm not surprised at the same time that you're coming to more or less to some maybe more some of approach. But at the same time, I'm being surprised you're being reasonable. <laughs> okay, that 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 is a good point okay uh speaking of not being reasonable let's start talking about monorepos uh so uh sometimes in software development there are large sweeping changes across the company that have repercussions on many projects uh here's a real world example from my last job at the insurance company we had to introduce a new insurance plan and that meant updating three websites and multiple underlying libraries that were used for uh insurance rate calculations and stuff like that so how do you coordinate these changes well this idea of a monorepo where all of your projects live in the same repository in theory that would mean you can just create a branch with the new insurance plan stuff all inside of it and it simplifies everything you just switch to the branch everything is ready for testing merging and deployment it's fantastic what could possibly go wrong um before I go into what can actually go wrong, <laughs> uh, there can be like advantages for, for monorepo. So I, I did actually really like, like that, um, approach when we were doing it at the insurance company. So we got all of the insurance company projects into a monorepo and we did exactly that. We had my, our one branch for all of the plan six changes that were in there and again because of the small team size and low parallel development that was happening, it was just fine. Like there were no real merge issues that occurred from it, but like everything I said during the branching section still applies to this. It's just going to be multiplied even more because now you've got even more projects to have merge conflicts on. But you, you can also have some extra benefits. So, uh, we had tools inside the company that could tell us exactly which applications were modified since the last deployment. So we would always deploy everything together, but we would only deploy the minimum requirements of what actually changed. So we had tools that actually would look through the Git journal to say only these applications were actually changed by uh, the things that you were doing. So only deploy these applications and you don't need to worry about the other ones. There are 
increasing amounts of build tools that are focused on monorepos, mainly from companies that are trying to build their monorepos and are realizing that it's taking seven and a half hours to build like a tiny thing because there are too many dependencies. So companies like Facebook have made tools like Buck. Uh, Buck in particular is interesting because it also distributes a cache of build artifacts across an entire company's fleet of devices to speed up builds. Uh, so generally, not only does the build tool do a much better job of knowing exactly the minimum amount of stuff that needs to be built. But if you don't have it built locally on your machine, it can go get pre-built versions from other machines on the network, which is great. Um, and apparently this is how game development has mostly switched to recently, which is also very nice. But like branches, which feel like the obvious solution to dumbasses like me who, uh, who use them and say like, well, clearly this is the future and everyone should be doing this. Uh, they fall down at scale. So one of the things that gets touted a lot is easier code sharing and easier code sharing. How that's never really defined how it's easier to code share, but, um, like, a lot of stuff falls down because the monorepo is generally so big that it can't actually fit on your local machine. So then you have to have tools to manage the monorepo locally uh, that download only subsets to only get the individual projects you need. And then you can't really consult all of it. So then you need like a network search engine to search across the oh repository. Goodness. And then I'm like, yeah, but you could also just do this with multiple repositories and like GitHub, you know, like easier code sharing, like, First of all, I'm not quite sure how finding stuff in a repository also makes it easier code sharing, but also like these discovery tools exist already for poly repos is the way people call multiple repos as opposed to mono repos. Anyway, uh, these tools also exist for poly repos. So you're not actually gaining anything from the mono repo in this particular case. Immense repo sizes that take forever to pull. This is a thing. Uh, apparently Twitter, when they moved to a mono repo, took several hours to check out sometimes so that's oh my nice goodness. several hours yeah oh. um there have been reports of like five minute git status calls where you're just asking like which files have changed locally on my computer oh my versus the thing God. and it takes five minutes to run uh like some people have that in their bash prompt where it runs every time they press enter so imagine that taking five minutes mm. that's great love it um yeah uh, one of the things that comes up a lot, and again, this is one of the things that probably works in a small team, the, the size I'm used to, but doesn't work at like Facebook scale is let's say you refactor an API and you make a breaking change. So every use of that API needs to be changed in some way. Like let's say method signature changes just to have a real example that will work in this way. You could technically with a monorepo change every single usage of that API across your entire company's code. Like that is the thing you can do, but there's probably going to be other code that's going to be written in the meantime. That's going to be using the old method signature. And then you're stuck in an internal, uh, an infernal circle of trying to resolve the merges before someone else writes another piece of code that uses the old API and so on and so on and so on. So there are a bunch of inherent downsides to monorepos. Uh, one of the things that doesn't really get talked about too much is, uh, it actually sort of facilitates tight coupling between components of your code because there are no longer any hard boundaries around anything. One of the things that's nice, like I, I, I'm using nice with air quotes, uh, about having multiple projects is that there are generally stronger boundaries around the things about who can modify what and 
like the rules about how your code is coupled and all of that, all that falls apart when you're in a mono repo because it's a free for all. You can go modify stuff. And yes, the big companies have some level of rights management software that actually tries to see if you have any business modifying code that is on the other side of the company or stuff like that. But it, you can still do weird shit like have weird dependencies pop up between modules that probably shouldn't and stuff just because it's convenient and it's there right next to your code instead of going through like formal processes. Um, it makes open sourcing certain parts of your code base difficult. Uh, I think Google and Facebook are the big examples of companies that are kind of doing this, but in a very weird way where they have batshit crazy tools that convert the, a subset of their mono repo into an individual Git repo or something that they can put on GitHub. And then there's some level of cross compatibility where they import patches from one into the other, but not anyway, it's crazy shit. And generally this also comes with like bug tracking being separated between your internal bug tracker and what's publicly visible on the open source bug tracker and all that stuff. That's not inherent to mono repos in particular. It's just like company development versus open source development stuff, but it also gets lumped into there. And the big one is it gives a false sense of security that whatever is head on master is completely re representative of the state of your latest deployment. Like we are a very small company where we generally have one server or two to touch with every deployment. And we can be relatively certain that if something is head on master, it's deployed exactly that way and on our servers. But what happens when you've got data centers all over the earth that might not necessarily be on the latest versions of your binaries or stuff like that? Or maybe one of your applications is on master, but in app store review. So technically that's not, that's not what's actually in production right now. And there's other stuff that's more complex. Like let's say you've got an iOS client app and you've got your server backend. You can't really take into consideration, well, even outside of a monorepo, you can't do this, but the monorepo structure le leads you to believe, oh, well, this application exists and the server exists and they are going to be the only things that ever talk to each other. Like, no, you still have like old users of your old application, especially the ones that are using the version that isn't in stuck in app review. Like they're connecting to your new backend as well. And they need to be able to continue to do their stuff and your tests may pass across your uh your mono repo where it says oh well yeah as long as you're using this version and this uh server like they can talk to each other fine but what happens with another client like there, there's a bunch of this false sense of security built into the notion that everything like this is a snapshot of your entire company's production environment which is complete bullshit because that's not how deployments work at large scale and you have to be wary of that when taking into account mono repos I do want to point out, like, obviously, I'm talking a lot about what happens to monorepos at scale. This is just anecdotal stuff that I've read across the internet. I have no experience of uh, developing monorepos at scale, and therefore, uh, I might be wrong about some of this shit, but, you know. It's funny because it is kind of more or less the same for me. Um, I've started to have experience at it because uh, our backend teams are uh, a big or at least a big monorepo with but it's completely at the opposite of uh the iOS team that we are 
where we were big some models proponents. I I wouldn't say we backpedal, but we've been more realistic. Like everything used to be a sum modules, and now I would say that we regroup a lot of things into the uh, under one umbrella. So I think a lot of our UI stuff in now is now one Git sum module. Uh, a lot of our base, like oh, you want to build a Cocoa slash uh, Mac app slash iOS app that like some stuff we call. We call we like to call it either our R foundation or our base repo. That is another repo, but that inside it contains multiple projects. Um and those multiple projects used to also be multiple repos. Uh so it was a bit of a uh, of a pain to manage, especially if you wanted to update uh the one down like a leaf down there. Uh you really need to uh, go update it everywhere. So that was kind of a pain in the butt. Uh, and of course, like our base repo is shared everywhere, so uh, removing those copy of the base repo was nice. Uh, one example I've run into recently is a team was working on a shared framework inside of the mono repo, and by and we kind of were dependent on the work they were doing, but the work they were doing was in their in their mono repo, but in their own branch. So the way uh, the way the backenders are working is like they all each team have their own branch but to share code it needs to go be deployed in production and then once it's deployed in production then teams they merge from what was been in production back into their develop branch a bit i, th- I think they're more like uh strict doing more strict or stricter uh git flow than we are on the ios team uh, we've kind of fit that, but we kind of adopted our own kind of Git flow, uh, we, our own Git flow, uh, and it's like it's, and because we also have like shared modules, you can update the modules, but your current app is not required to be on the most up to date version of, let's say, uh, the UI library or the shared iOS tools. It can still be back there, but in the mono repo, you're either up to date or stuck in your own branch. And I was causing some quite conflict where I was like, you know, you could have made that a separate repo and then just use their master and then they just like lend that on that master. And then if a, a team in one specific branch in the money repo, they want to be to that, they just point to that some module pointer and that's it. So it was uh, quite funny because uh, one of the thing I feel it is somewhat getting straightforward. No, I, I will, I won't be, uh, like, I won't backpedal what I'm saying. It's like something we've now kind of mastered and is quite straightforward and quite easy to use, uh, is becoming kind of a small, big-ish problem in the monorepo culture that we have. So it was interesting a clash of understanding about like polyrepo versus monorepos, uh, and trying to find solution in the monorepo, uh, world was quite challenging for uh my polyrepo brain yeah uh i do want <laughs> you to... seem so excited about monorepos but <laughs> just just with that yeah no i i actually i wouldn't be opposed to, at work if our mono re- if we actually moved to monorepos but the condition i would make is it would be one per client because otherwise there's no point in actually like having multiple of our clients stuff like there there well there are shared underlying libraries but like at that point they're not changed very often at all uh so i don't really see much point in doing that but 
it's much more frequent that we have changes to coordinate across an entire suite of one client's applications because they are, uh, let's say there's a new field that we're getting for product details from one of our e-commerce sites. Like we're going to have to update the actual front end site. We're going to have to update the management tools and we're going to have to update probably the thing that indexes uh, for Elasticsearch that I wrote. So to coordinate changes across all three of those applications and ensure that when they go into production into our monorepo snapshot of what's in production, uh, which is not an actual snapshot, uh, it would be a lot easier to handle those changes, quote unquote, atomically with a monorepo than it would be to do them all by hand. But at the same time, I don't think we would gain that much from it. It would just be like easier for me to manage, but I don't think it's actually worth the trouble of doing another big repo migration throughout the company now that people are starting to get comfortable with Git or the people who weren't used to it anyway. And there are more productive changes we could be making to our development practices than moving towards modern repos. But in like much like branching, I think it can be very good at small teams. It sort of falls apart very quickly if you're going at scale. At least when you're at scale, you have the tools and the engineering to actually build stuff that can actually help you manage that. Whereas like R&D time that I take to improve our development practices is time I'm not working on other projects that make us money. So it's kind of hard to balance. Yeah, and especially for us, like we were quite strict, like any, like we have a one-to-one correlate. We used to have one-to-one correlation to from projects to Git repos, and like by living the burden of, and sadly that's one of those problems for these. Is like you can have like either debate on the internet, or you can just start living the pains. And once you live the pain long enough, then you'll adjust and adjust and adjust, and that's what we experience after. I think we start. We did that kind of merging of some repos, maybe mm, a year or two ago, maybe eighteen months ago, and the project was at that point maybe four years old. So, like after living the pain of it, then you adjust, and that's what we've more or less did. Is of course you would try something from your past experience, uh, whether it's mono repo, poly repo, do whatever you want, but make it shouldn't stay static over time. That's the I think. Personally, if there's something you learn from my personal experience of all of these topics is these solutions shouldn't stay static over time. They should evolve with the burden and the problem you face. Definitely. And you should always be like, don't experiment necessarily on your entire company's stuff at once, but try and have little experiments on the side where you try various methods of doing stuff. Like Gitflow didn't necessarily makes sense to me until I started using it for iconoclasm locally. And then when I went to work at the insurance company and they were running into issues with how they were managing their code, I suggested it as a solution. And then we adopted it and it actually worked really well for the size team we were doing. And then we moved to the monorepo thing because we've had very large changes to coordinate to actually do big deployments. And that also ended up working very well. But again, like it, it worked because of our teams and all of that stuff. Uh, and always be aware of what your needs are and try to take that into consideration when planning your stuff out. But there's always going to be unforeseen stuff uh, that's going to happen. Uh, like I've, I've probably not run into them yet at work, but they're probably imminent. <laughs> so <laughs> stuff to look forward to. Uh, I do want to shout out uh, an episode of the Edge Cases podcast, which at the moment of recording, I believe is still offline. 
uh, which really sucks because Edge Cases is one of the podcasts that actually inspired us to make this podcast. Uh, there was a really good episode about feature flags versus, uh, versus branches a long time oh, ago. Oh, that's true. I forgot. Called What's the Deal with NS Integer? Which <laughs> <laughs> I love this title. Yeah. Uh, to remind people who may not have been, uh, Edge Cases listener back in the day for, I don't remember if it was all the run of the podcast or most of the run of the podcast. Uh, half the show was one person's topic and the other half was another person's topic. Uh, so there was a topic for about a 64 bit migration and there was also a topic of feature flags versus branches on the same episode, <laughs> which is where the NS integer title came from. So I wanted to listen to that episode for inspiration uh, for this one, but unfortunately the Edge Cases site was down. I don't know if it's back up yet, but if it is back, I will put a link in the show notes to that episode. Uh, there may be overlap with what we talked about here uh, because I listened to it like once every year for the past couple of years, um, but I don't actually remember the specifics of what's in it, so it's not necessarily intentional plagiarism if i did anything that completely ripped off their episode um but i i'm pretty sure there was enough new stuff in there and they can't talk about my personal experience which is the true jewel of this episode uh but yeah otherwise uh, sorry for not being an inflammatory yannick episode but there are going to be plenty of these in the rest of the year don't worry yeah yeah that's maybe it's the break we need this is summer break of inflammatory episode from yannick and then what summer, summer of no controversy. Oh my goodness. You, you, you like to have those summer of X. Uh, no. <laughs> okay. Before you, you start to say inflammatory stuff, let's wrap it up. So if you want to find more links about all the stuff Yannick discussed about the branching strategy, feature flags, hopefully uh, a link to the uh, Edge Cases podcast. You can find the show note for this episode at limitlesspossibility.net slash 115. If you want to look at our back catalog of episodes, you can go to limitlesspossibility.net. If you want to follow news about the podcast, you can find the it on Twitter, that's uh, at limipo underscore podcast. That's L-I-M-I-P-O underscore podcast. You can find myself on Twitter being not that much inflammatory at Lukonosh. That's L-U-C-C-O-N-O-U-C-H-E. And if you want the inflammatory content, you can find Yannick at... Sakurina, that's S-A-K-U-R-I-N-A. I have the spicy flaming marzipan takes. Come at me. Oh, wow. But no, don't come at Yannick because soon enough, we should have an episode about it. So, and it's not in two weeks. I'm not saying it's in two weeks, but soon enough, we will have it. And Yannick will have all of his takes in that episode and not on Twitter. So please reserve them. Please, wow. please. I'm being censored. <laughs> yes. I, I. Oh, yeah, yeah. But come on. We start to have, uh, we start to have some of the discussion online and you were saying, Oh, no, no, we need to keep that for the episode. So it, it's true. So we're selfs. No, we're each censoring each other. I would say that. Okay, that's the, too much of the reading of the audio. We are keeping our cards close to the vest. That's good. And on that note, see you in two weeks. See you in two weeks.